Hey, my name is Phil, and this is my wife, Meredith, and we are the pastors here at Cornerstone Church. We're so glad that you have connected with us here today and that you're getting ready to listen to a message that we know is going to build a resilient faith in your life. Right now, in this moment and in our days ahead, let's continue declaring Jesus over every situation. Enjoy the message. Today is going to be a good day. It's gonna be a great day in the house. I am so thrilled because today we are kicking off a brand new series. We're kicking off a brand new series and over the next several weeks, we are gonna be learning more and more about who Jesus is. We're gonna be learning more and more. It's my hope and my prayer that every week we learn some more about who Jesus is. But in this series specifically, we're gonna look at the book of Luke and we are gonna talk about what is it that Luke was trying to tell us, trying to show us and reveal us about who Jesus is. Starting a brand new series today called For the One a series called For the One, and it's, we're gonna be focusing in and taking it from our core scripture in the book of Luke, chapter 15 and verse seven. Did I get it right this time? I keep flip-flopping. I know what the words say, but I keep saying the reference backwards. Yes, 15, seven, I got it right today. What it says is, for I tell you there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. There is more rejoicing in heaven over the one than over the 99 who have no need of repentance. We are gonna be looking at stories throughout the Gospel of Luke about the person of Jesus and who it is and why it is that he came. The book of Luke is one of the four gospels, one of the four stories that tell us a bit about who Jesus is. And while each of them have cohesive narratives, they all take a slightly different approach, a slightly different angle. There's something that each of them are trying to show us and reveal to us about Jesus. In the same way that if I came and I asked you, who is Jesus to you? you might tell me something about who Jesus is to you. And then if I came over here and I asked Phil, who is Jesus to you? Phil might tell me about who Jesus is to him because of what he's seen and what he's experienced. When we come and talk to each of us, there is something that we bring to the story. And each of the gospels has something that they bring to the story. And the Gospel of Luke is interesting and it's unique among the other Gospels for a couple of reasons. One, it's written by Luke, so you might have gathered that Luke is a physician and we also know of a physician meaning like a doctor. And we also know about Luke that Luke was a companion of Paul. He traveled around with Paul in his ministry journeys. And that a guy by the name of Theophilus commissioned Luke or asked Luke to write this account, this story, this, this what is it about Jesus? He actually, we gather, asked him to look into it to find out, is all of this actually true? We know this because if we look at the beginning of Luke, we look in Luke chapter one, I think it's in verse three, Luke chapter one and verse three, it says, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly may have certainty concerning the things that you have been 
taught. This is why Luke has written his gospel. And not only this gospel, but Luke also writes for us the book of Acts. In fact, it's very strange in our Bibles that we split them with the book of John, because if you read the book of Acts, the very beginning of the book of Acts says, and I'm gonna go on from what I wrote to you in my other work in Luke, they go right there together in the book of Acts, and Luke is writing a story for Theophilus, an account of his research about who Jesus is. Now, we don't know exactly who Theophilus was. We know that he must have been wealthy because he commissioned the writing of this book. But there are many theories about who he was. One theory is that he was Paul's attorney and that he was looking for an account that he could use to defend Paul's case. Another theory is that he was just a wealthy man who had become acquainted with the stories of the people of God and was curious about them, and so he hired Luke to write them on his behalf. Another theory is that he was a uh, a rabbi or a priest, a high priest at the time who had been researching and hearing what was happening and said, I need to know more about this and asked Luke to write it. And there are accounts of these, these different men whose names were Theophilus, who it makes sense any of them could have been who commissioned this work. But what we know for certain is that Luke esteemed this person because he refers to them as most excellent Theophilus. We also know that Theophilus must have had a hunger and a curiosity to understand and to know more about who Jesus was. And we know that he was wealthy enough that he could put forth the money to fund Luke's research and writing of this book. And we know that Luke cared enough to sit down and write a detailed, orderly account. And we know that the main theme that comes up residing time and time again throughout Luke's work is that the book of Luke is written to reveal to us that Jesus came to save all people. That Jesus came for every single person that was lost and that there is rejoicing in heaven over the one that is lost. And this makes sense because Luke is the only writer in the New Testament who was not of Jewish heritage, but of Gentile heritage, meaning he was not of the people who had originally been thought of as the people of God, but he was part of this extra group of people that had also been welcomed into the family of God, and that is good news for you and for me because I would guess that most of us in this room and listening today are not of Jewish origin and Jewish heritage. Probably some of us are, but the majority of us, like Luke, are part of the people who discovered Jesus and found out that his love was big enough and broad enough and wide enough for each and every one of us. And Luke writes this story to say, Jesus came to seek and to find the lost. This is why he came. He came for all of us, and he came for the one. He came for each and every one of us. So we're going to start today, we're going to start looking in the book of Luke chapter 7. If you want to turn with me, we're going to read quite a bit of scripture today. We're going to read Luke 7, and you can scroll all the way to Luke 7 and 36. Rachel, if there's any way I can get the double screen thing, that's helpful. If not, that's fine, but we'll, I'll struggle through. 
Luke 7 and 36. So this is, we have jumped into the book of Luke. We have moved past the part where Jesus is born and then Luke celebrates for us and tells us about John the Baptist and about how he prepared the way for Jesus. And then he tells us how Jesus has gathered his disciples and has now really stepped into his ministry. We have seen a few miracles happen and this story, this tale about who Jesus is is starting to get around. People are starting to hear about this new man who is traveling around and he speaks with authority and he casts out demons and the winds and the waves. Who is this Jesus? We come to Luke 7 and 36 and it says, and one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at the table. Now what most likely has happened now is that Jesus has just finished teaching in the temple or has come to this town and has been teaching people in the square. And as was common practice, one of the Pharisees, one of the elite in the crowd asked him to come to their house to eat. And it says, and Jesus was reclining at the table and behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. What is going on here? What is this woman doing? What is happening? How many of you have ever heard of the names of Judy and Robert Snow? No, it's unlikely. It's unlikely that you've heard of Robert and Judy Snow, but let me tell you about Robert and Judy Snow, these hooligans from the 1950s. I don't know if I should shun them or if I should admire them. Robert and Judy Snow were a couple who lived in the 1950s in New York City and made it their regular habit to go crash weddings that were being held at the Plaza and at the Pierre Hotel in New York City. This was like their regular monthly date night as they would look out, who's having a fancy wedding this month? We're there. And they would slide into these weddings where they knew absolutely no one. And for the night, they would rub shoulders with the finest of New York's elite. And they would pretend that this champagne belonged to them and that these fancy meals with extra sides were all just part of their regular life and they were so good at it and so skilled at it. Their daughter tells the story later because they didn't hide it. They told stories to their kids about their life sneaking in to weddings among New York's finest. They were proud of this side hustle that they had begun in their hobby of being absolute wedding crashers. And their skill was that, you know, when you're at a wedding and you're chatting with other guests and people say to you, oh, how do you know so-and-so or how did you get here? They would always preempt the, the question with, and now how do you know the bride or the groom? And then when the other person would answer, oh, we know the groom, I'm his aunt, um, we've been married for blah, blah, they would say, oh, that's so lovely. We know the bride. And then they would go down this tale of how they knew the bride's side of the family. And they would always position themselves on the opposite side of whatever person. They had made an entire lifestyle 
out of being absolute wedding crashers, which is almost as fun to me as Todd and Liz. These are their code cover names, but Todd and Liz went on their second date to someone else's wedding that they were not invited to and crashed the wedding. I mean, how did this conversation go? Hey, we've been on one date, that was kind of fun. Would you like to do it again sometime? I was thinking dinner and a movie or ice skating or I heard there's a wedding this Friday and it's gonna be great. Do you wanna go crash it? And the other person was like, yes, that's what I wanna do. Second date with you, crashing someone else's wedding, I'm there. But the story gets better because four years later, the couple whose wedding that it was receives an invitation, and this is a true story, receives an invitation in the mail to come and attend, officially invited, not as wedding crashers, come and attend the actual wedding of Todd and Liz, who crashed their wedding four years ago as their second date. Has anyone ever actually crashed a wedding? Yes! Oh my gosh, I'm you hooligans! I am so happy right now! Yes! It's so, like, if I lived a different life, I think I would be really into it. It's very exciting, and like, what happens? I, want, I have questions for you guys later, but let's focus right now. They are crashing these weddings, and when we read this story about this woman, for years, that's what I imagined this woman was doing. That they're having this nice dinner, this formal meal that they have invited Jesus into, and out of nowhere, this woman just appears, crashing the meal. I'm like, what is that? What? I have so many questions. How did this woman get here? How did she get inside? How did she get inside with all of this stuff and nobody knew? Why is she in someone else's home? Here's the thing. That's not exactly how it went down. It was very common at the time for meals to be served in kind of a front public courtyard type space. And that space was really considered an in-between space of not totally inside of your private home and not totally out in the middle of the street. And it would be common common place for someone to come in and out of that space. It would be really normal behavior for while people were sitting and having their meal, for someone else to mosey into the courtyard and have a little side conversation with somebody about some business they have going on later and then leave the meal. It was a normal practice for other people to come into the courtyard space who were not invited to the meal but came to sit around the outside and be part of what was happening in kind of a secondary tier. So this woman isn't completely out of space. But she obviously has taken this custom to another level. She has gone outside of what was generally regarded as acceptable. She has now come to Jesus and she is weeping to the point that she has enough tears to wash his feet. She has now taken down her hair to use it as a towel, which is, besides being kind of odd, is considered completely socially inappropriate. 
Women were supposed to keep their hair tied up. It was considered inappropriate for to, to let other people out in public see you with your hair down at the time. But she has undone her hair and she is weeping. And now she has opened this bottle of precious perfume which costs about 300 denarii, which was probably close to about a year's wages. An average daily wage at the time would have been a single denarii. She is making an absolute scene here at the table. This has gone beyond a side conversation. This has gone beyond her sliding into the courtroom and saying, Jesus, I really appreciated what you shared at the temple today. This has gone beyond her sliding in and saying, hey, that really meant something to me and thank you so much. She has made, she is pouring out her whole life and her whole scene and it's gotten to the point now where the people around the table can no longer go on with what they are doing all attention is being drawn to this woman and what she's doing and what she's pouring out before Jesus and then it says and now when the Pharisee who had invited him being Jesus saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him for she is a sinner. Oh, Luke is so good in what he is doing here and what he is writing and pointing out about what is happening because part of the point that Luke wants to continually make throughout his gospel is that many saw Jesus as a prophet. Many saw Jesus as a good man. Many saw Jesus as a good teacher. Many saw Jesus as someone to look to and to admire, but they hadn't quite grasped or they weren't willing to accept and to step into that he wasn't just a prophet and he wasn't just a good teacher and he just wasn't a good moral leader. He was God himself in flesh. And today there are those who want to say that Jesus is a good prophet among the many prophets and that Jesus is a good moral teacher and we should follow some of the things that he says and that it's nice to bring his teachings into your collection of teaching on spirituality that you have gathered from far and wide but Luke is saying and he is pointing out that he is not a prophet and he's making the point by saying that this man thinks he's not a prophet because he thinks he doesn't know who's touching him and Jesus is getting ready to prove to him he's far more than that. But Jesus is not just a prophet. He exceeds what it means to be a prophet and he is the Messiah, the Christ, God in flesh who is coming to seek and to save the one. And it says this woman who touches him is a sinner. And there were a couple kinds of, of ways that that word sinner would be used. It might be used just to refer to someone who had become ceremonially, ceremonially unclean meaning there were tons of Jewish laws and customs and ways that you could become unclean and not able to participate in practices, go into the temple, participate in sacrifices or be present at meals because you were ceremonially unclean. This could happen if you touched someone who you found out had been like, had a runny nose, which you know, that's a nice rule. And it could happen if you touched a dead animal and it could happen in all kinds of different ways that you had become ceremonially unclean. But this word sinner that 
they use here doesn't just refer to someone who has become momentarily unclean. It refers to their moral and ethical position, that she lives a life that is regularly outside of the will and purpose of God for her life. He is making the point that this woman is not an upstanding member of society who happened to be in a bad moment. This is a woman who has regularly and consistently been known among the city to be outside of God's best plans for her life. And it says that Simon is thinking all of this. Then in verse 40, it says, and Jesus answering him said to him, Jesus answered what this man was thinking. He didn't even say it out loud, but he was thinking it. And it says, and Jesus answered him. And what Simon obviously had not grasped and what Simon obviously did not understand is where we started, that Luke had told him, or that Luke would recount for us later that there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one, over the one sinner, over the one whose life has been defiled, over the one whose position has been marred by pain and by brokenness and by the decisions that they've made in life than over the 99 righteous. And this statement that appears to us in Luke 15 is sandwiched right between two parables, two stories that Jesus tells them to drive the point home. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting ready in the morning, I was hurrying to get ready, and I went, my, I have like a shelf that's a little bit above my head, and that's where I keep some of my jewelry. I grabbed my wedding ring, and somehow as I grabbed it, it just fell out of my hand and went somewhere. And you know, in the morning, the morning is not the time to be losing things. So I'm searching all over. I'm like shaking every jacket that was within, you know, a five mile range, trying to figure out if it's in the pocket somewhere. I'm flipping shoes. Now I'm looking in parts of the bedroom that are nowhere related to the place where I've lost it, but I can, I'm on my hands and knees and I'm digging in corners and I'm like, where has my wedding ring gone? And I know that it's like, we gotta get the kids to school now. And I'm like, where is this thing? And to like compound, the issue is that I'm searching everywhere and I can't find it. And while I'm searching everywhere, I remember that that day, Phil and I are supposed to be recording this video about receiving communion as a married couple that some of you received. We sent it out on Valentine's Day. And and I'm like, we're recording. And I'm like, I cannot record a video about strengthening your marriage and not have my wedding ring on on this day because you guys will email us and be like, is everything okay, guys? I know, because I've gotten those emails, and I'm like, where is this ring? And now I'm like calling Phil into the search party, and I'm like, I can't find the ring anywhere. I don't know what's going on. Here's where I've looked. He starts re-looking in places I've already looked, you know, which is kind of condescending, and then you're like, I told you that I looked in those shoes already. And he's like, well, I'm just re-looking in the shoes now. And so we're digging through everything. And finally, bless the Lord, my husband finds the ring, had fallen in like the hood 
of a jacket. I, I don't even know how it got there, but he shakes it and it comes popping out. And we were the relief, the joy, the happiness that filled our room when I finally found that ring was, oh, thank you. Thank you for coming along on the journey with me. Jesus tells this story, two stories. He tells a story about a man who lost one of his sheep and he leaves the other 99 and he goes off so he can find this one sheep. And he says, and when he brings it back and he finds it, won't he tell all of his friends, rejoice with me for I found the one that I had lost. And then he gives us this scripture that we've just read about how there's more rejoicing in heaven over the one that needed repentance than the 99 who have no need. And then he goes directly into, don't let that little title split that shows up in your Bible, those were put in later. Don't let that throw off the momentum of what's happening here. Luke goes straight into Jesus telling another story about a woman who loses a coin and she can't find it anywhere and she's searching everywhere for her one coin. And when she finds her one coin, it says she calls all of her friends and she sends out a text blurb in the group chain and she says, I found my coin that I was looking for. Won't you celebrate with me? We're gonna have a party because I found that one coin that I was looking for and Jesus is trying to get them the picture that that is what it's like in heaven. That is what it's like in heaven when the one, the one sinner that was lost, the one broken one that was lost, I know that I have a basket of other coins and I know that I have a pen full of other sheep but the one that I couldn't find, I found it and all of heaven is rejoicing and all of heaven is celebrating because the one has come home. But Simon doesn't know any of this yet. And this woman is messing up his dinner. And Simon is sitting there. And Simon and the woman came to the meal for very different reasons. And they came to the meal for very different purposes. Simon heard Jesus was in town. Simon heard people were talking about Jesus. And Simon has a nice table. And he's known in the city. And he thinks it might be nice for people to hear how Simon had Jesus at his table. Simon is bringing Jesus to his table because he's heard some things about Jesus. And Simon wants to analyze the situation with Jesus. Simon wants to see what all the fuss is about. Simon comes because he wants to know, does Jesus really measure up to some of the things that he's heard? Simon is bringing Jesus to his table because he wants to assess the situation and then give his, I can already hear Simon's long form post coming right now. He took a selfie that day. Had lunch with Jesus today. Here's my five takes on who Jesus is and what you need to know. As if anyone cares about your take on Jesus, Simon. Nobody needs it because the woman came to see Jesus. Whew. 
Because when she heard him, something on the inside of her moved and shifted and changed and she was broken and she was repentant and she didn't need to analyze it and she didn't need to fix it and she didn't need to give her opinion and her hot take on it. She needed to come to him and she needed to cry out to him and she needed to pour out before him and she needed him to know how much she saw him and how much she felt known by him and how the love of who he was overwhelmed her and overtook her and how everything about her life had just shifted and had just changed and had been redirected. The woman doesn't come because she has an opinion or because she thinks somebody wants to know or because she wants to analyze. The woman comes crawling into the space because she has been forever changed by being in the presence of Jesus because she has been forever changed by what Jesus said to her and how he looked at her and Simon doesn't get it because Simon just wants to sit there and judge what's happening and this moment is very inconvenient for him because it is taking the attention away from the meal that he had planned and I promise you that inviting Jesus to your table will be inconvenient to you and will disrupt the plans that you had and will bring some people into your circle that you didn't actually invite to the table but Simon is sitting there trying to figure out what's going on and it says while he thought these judgmental thoughts in his mind Jesus answered him he answered the thoughts that he held in his heart because so as a man thinks is he and it says and Jesus answering him said Simon I've got something to say to you Simon answered and said say it teacher he's still together Jesus said a certain money lender had two debtors one owed 500 denarii and the other 50 50 is more than five yes and when they could not pay he canceled both of their debts and now which of them will love him more I can see Simon answering like jaw a little bit tight you know the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt he said to him and Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. You have judged rightly. You have judged rightly, Simon. The thing that you have said is exactly what is happening with this woman. No one was saying that this woman was without sin. And no one was saying that this woman had lived a moral life. No one was even saying that her sin was the same or was equal to other people's sin. It is implied in the story that Jesus tells that this woman's sin was greater than other people's sins. That there are things that we do and ways that we treat each other that have stronger implications on the way that it mars our soul and the way that it mars someone else's soul than other things. Stealing bubble gum from the corner store is a sin because it is taking from someone else what is not yours. The implications on your soul and on that person's soul is not the same as when someone abuses someone else. Those are not 
equal in terms of their implication and their impact on our life and on our soul and on our ability to go on and on the replication of sin that that creates in our world. What is equal is the fact that his grace and his mercy is big enough to encompass all of them. One of them is a $5 debt and one of them is a $50 debt, but he is big enough to take it all in. No one is saying that this woman has been a saint. Jesus is saying it is the very fact that she has so much to be ashamed of and so much to be embarrassed about that has caused her to move and to cry out. And then I want you to get this in verse 44. It says, and he said to Simon, is that the right verse? In verse 44, yeah, it says, and then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. And then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon. I want you to get this. Jesus turned toward this woman and he said to Simon. Whew. Why? Because Simon represents for us the religious tradition of the day. Simon represents for us everything that made them feel safe and secure. Simon represents for us the reason that they thought that they could trust in Jesus, the work of their own hands and the measuring up of the law. Simon represents for them the way things had always been done and what was expected. Simon represents the caste system that their society had set out of who should sit at the table and who should not sit at the table. Simon represents all of those things and it says that Jesus turned from Simon, and he said to the woman, the woman who represents everything that is broken, the woman who represents everything that has been lost, the woman who represents the decades of years of abuse and the uncertainty and being cast out and not being welcome at somebody's table and not being worthy of being called in and who never thought that she would be allowed into the temple, much less into the presence of the king. And it says Jesus turned from Simon and he said to the woman, sorry, he turned from Simon, looked at the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see her, Simon? Do you see her? Not her sin, not her brokenness, not all the things that she's done, not what everyone has said about her, not her bad attitude, not her anger problem, not her addiction issue, not her prostitution, not her past, not the family she came from. Do you see her, Simon? Do you see her? When you sit there in judgment, when you gathered your list for the table, do you see her, Simon? And then he says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. He says, do you see her? Simon didn't get it still. 
Luke 19 and 10 says, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. If John 3.16 is John's core scripture, this is what John wants you to get when you finish reading his gospel, this is Luke's. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why he came. And he goes on and he says, uh, and you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many. Jesus is not denying that she has not done things appropriately up until this moment in her life. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who, is, who can even forgive sins? And now Jesus is not even speaking to them anymore. It says, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus has now turned from Simon and he has turned from everyone else who was at the table and he said to this woman, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. This woman who started her day on the dregs of society, her life has been forever turned and forever changed and forever reoriented because she heard from Jesus and she came and she worshiped and she poured out at his feet in spite of the table of people looking at her saying she never should have been there besides the fact that she knew I'm making a scene in the midst of this nice table besides all of that and in spite of all of that she began to pour out herself before for Jesus and because her love was great for him and because she saw how good and how faithful he was she poured herself out in front of him and before him and in the midst of everyone and it says Jesus turned away from Simon and he turned away from the table and he said the way that you've done things I can't do things that way anymore and the way that you've understood things I'm not doing them that way anymore and the way that makes you comfortable and the way that makes you sure I need you to turn your back on those things so you can see this woman, so you can look at this woman, so you can hear what she's going through, so you can feel what she's going through, so you can walk with her, so you can see her life turned up and restored and turned around and walking faithfully with Jesus. Jesus came not to sit at the table with those who thought they were righteous. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came for the one, the one who nobody thought was worthy, the one who nobody thought was going to make it, the one who everyone else had counted out when the sheep was so far gone that the man's neighbor said to him, just let it go. You've got 99 other ones. Jesus said, but I can't. There's still one out there who's wandering around and has got himself lost, and it's going to require a whole new way of doing things. It's going to require a shift in the trajectory. Don't be so attached to the table that you were used to that you're not willing to see the woman who is in need. Jesus is calling 
for a church who is willing to turn away from what has been, away from what makes us comfortable, away from what sells good and looks good, who is willing to turn towards a woman who might cause some of your neighbors to talk about you, who is willing to turn towards someone who might cause people to wonder what you've got going on, who, who is willing to turn in a way that even sometimes the churchy people in your life aren't ready for it and turn towards this woman. I had an experience a few years back. I was at a meeting with, um, there were a couple of other pastors there, I think like three or four of us. And then there was a leader from a local group that works with people in our city who are hurting and are broken and need help. And they were giving a presentation on some different things. And in their presentation, they said that they were trying to increase partnerships with the three churches that they knew they saw people from the most often. And one of the pastors at the table, without missing a beat, said, ooh, that, you have that list? I don't ever want to be on that list. Now, here's a little leadership lesson for you which is that you don't always know everything that's going on in a room because I happened to know that we were on that list. But I also happened to know that he and I apparently did not hold the same perspective of what it meant to be on that list because we are a church who is making room and making space for the hurting and for the broken and for the lost who carry the heart of Jesus who has come to seek and to save the lost. And if there are any organizations in our city who are reaching people who are in need of the love and of the care of who Jesus is, it is my prayer that we will continually be on those lists because it means that we are making space for the one that we are turning away from what it means to be shiny and perfect and held in great esteem by those who don't even give out the esteem anyways. And we are turning towards the broken. We are a church who turns towards the broken. Time and time again, I want to see us turning towards the broken and saying to them, I see you. I see you. I see a child of God. I see someone loved by the Father. I see someone whose heart is open. I see someone who is seeking his face. I know that there is the addiction thing, and I know that you find yourself homeless, and I know you don't know what to do with your kids, and I know that there's the custody battle, and I know you've got the divorce situation, and I know that you have trauma that's showing up in your here and your now, and I know that you've been seeking a lot of things that have caused issues in your life, and I know you're not sure about your identity, but I see you. I see the one. I see the one that Jesus wants to go after. I see the one that he came for. I see the one that he's longing for. I see the one that his heart goes after. We are a church who is going to go after the one. And I want you, as we wrap up today, to just think who is the one that Jesus is calling you to speak to, to go after, to connect with, to pray for. 
who is your one? Who is your one? Because I tell you this, there is more rejoicing in heaven over the one sinner who repents than over the 99 righteous who had no need of repentance. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for what you do in our midst. We thank you that you saw us. God, I thank you that you saw me. I thank you that you saw each and every one of us. And God, I ask you right now to open our hearts to the one. I ask you that over the coming weeks, our hearts, our lives, our church would be shaken, God, for the one that you are sending us after. And God, we just speak right now that we cast down our egos, we cast down our reputation, we cast down, God, anything that would cause us to be hesitant to go after the one. And we say that we turn towards them. In your mighty name, Jesus. God, I thank you for your great love. I thank you for your great love. Come on, has his love been good to you? Has his love been faithful in your life? Has his love been constant in your life? God, I thank you for the mighty love of who you are. I thank you that it overtakes me. I thank you that it covers us. I thank you that it causes you to turn towards us. And I thank you that it's your loving kindness, God, that reaches to the farthest stretches. We bless your name, God. Jesus, Jesus.